Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10 is a, every chapter in Revelation is interesting, but this chapter is really interesting because what you're going to recognize as we read it, um, in some way it may feel to you like it doesn't fit or it doesn't fit the flow because the flow has been, you know, is very systematic. You know, the, the way these judgments roll out is very systematic, and I would say systematic in a chronological way as well. Like we've seen seal judgments, and we've seen trumpet judgments. We're right, we're right at the very end of trumpet judgments, and we have yet to get to the seventh trumpet sounding, which will initiate seven bowl judgments. So, you know, really 21 judgments in all, but there's this interesting, interesting chapter, and I'll, I'll get into that in just a minute. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for the divine timing of this chapter in our lives. And God, I know that, that John's heart was ministered to 2,000 years ago. And Father, we do believe that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're going to minister to us tonight. Our ears are open God, our hearts are ready to receive, and so give to us, God, what we need to hear, and we pray that it would not just pass through us like water through a pipe, but God, it would settle in our hearts, and God, it would settle because we would take the time to consider and meditate and ponder what it is that you have to say to us, and so Father, we're yours, and we pray that you would speak tonight through your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So right before the seventh trumpet judgment, there is this really interesting, um, it's almost like a, a parenthetical chapter. And, you know, I just want to pose this key question to you tonight. How does God recharge his servants when they are, how does God recharge his servants when they are weary or exhausted, uh, or even distressed, because you know you can be a servant of God, and you can, you can still feel that way, right? Anybody? Hey, by the way, Thursday nights are interactive, so if, um, if I feel like you're not locked in, I'm just going to walk away. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about? I mean, sometimes we don't want to admit it. Sometimes we don't want to admit that we, we have our own struggles and difficulties. Like, we want to be, you know, Superman or Superwoman spiritually, and, you know, give at least the veneer or the facade that we have it all together. But the fact is this, we, we all have moments where, we, where we're low. And, and or maybe we're just um, having a hard time moving forward or finishing something that God has set before us. In those times, how does God recharge his servants? And, and I think there is an answer here in um, this chapter, because this really is what God does to John. It feels like a parenthetical chapter, like I said. It, it, almost, it almost feels like a pause. You know, if this was a, a punctuation mark, it would feel like a comma, you know, as far as the flow of, of this book. Um, but what you're going to notice is it's not a parenthetical without purpose. It's not a comma without a cause, you know, there's something that God is doing because he cares for his servant. And in fact, what he is doing in this chapter is he's refueling John. You know, he is, he is helping John out in a moment where John, without a doubt, was distressed. Um, you know, 
I, I, I don't have a Tesla, obviously, you know, but I know people that do, and I think they're, they're pretty amazing vehicles. And this is what I'm told, that they actually, like if you're traveling from here to, to San Diego, they actually plot out where the recharge stations are at. And, you know, it's got all the mileage. I don't know, anyone have a Tesla here? Is that the way it works? You can send me an email later if it doesn't, um, and I'll correct it next week. Um, but there are points along the way where there has to be a recharging, because if you don't recharge the battery, then, I mean, you're not getting to San Diego, right? It's just not, you're not getting to the beach. You'll get stuck in Baker, and who wants to get stuck in Baker? And, you know, the servant of God needs to be recharged, you know. I mean, there is a better illustration to this in the sense of we don't just, like, get charged and then run out and get charged again. There should be a consistent charging in our lives. Um, but, but nevertheless, we need to be recharged by God. And I would say this to you. When, when you say to God, give me a word. God, give me a word. I want to be your instrument. I want you to speak through me. Um, or when you say, you know, God, I want, I want you to use my life. Here am I, God, send me. You know, simultaneously, as God answers that prayer, as he is going to use your life, he also gives you, he also gives you his burden. And I don't mean burden in a negative sense. You know, in, inevitably someone's going to say, hey, pastor said that it's really miserable serving God. No, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying to you that there are burdens that God carries on his heart for people that, that we, if we're really sincerely like Isaiah saying, here am I, God, send me, we will carry those burdens as, as well. Because, you know, vision for ministry is birthed out of burden. It's when we really do care for what God cares about that he begins to give us insight as to what it is that he wants to do through our lives and in a particular generation. There's been no revival, there's been no awakening without the people of God sharing the burden of God. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Sometimes we don't altogether know what it is that we're praying for when we pray. But as you carry that, as you share uh, with God those things that he cares about, sometimes with that does come distress, and sometimes with that does come a weariness. You guys know that if you have a loved one that's lost and you're, you're deeply concerned over their salvation, there are times where you're just emotionally exhausted because you're so concerned, and that's what I'm talking about tonight, and every real prophet of God experienced this. Daniel did. You can go and read these books yourself, and you can see from an autobiographical aspect that the prophets were not afraid to share the challenge of serving God. They were very honest about the cost that was involved. Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Paul absolutely did. When you read the minor prophets and you consider what it is that those prophets took on, you know, that heavy thing in a sense as they were bearing the heart of God for people, um, you know that there was challenge. But it wasn't challenge that was unmet by God. Because while we do, as we avail ourselves to God and open our hearts and hands up to him and say, God, here am I, send me. And as we carry those things that he carries on his heart and as we're burdened for the lost and broken over the condition of the unsaved, God does supply us the strength to be able to serve simultaneously with joy. How does he do that? Well, we're going to check that out tonight. So chapter 10 verse 1 says this. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. Very interesting uh, description of this angel. 
and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. So, you know, as you read this, I'm sure there are some various things that pop into your mind. You know, John has been confronted with a lot of different angels. And so he says, I saw still. So it's like angel after angel. And you know that as the trumpets were blasted, it was, it was uh, the responsibility, uh, responsibility of angels to do that. And so there was another angel, two Greek words that we translate into another. Um, one means another of a different kind. One means another of a same kind. This is another of a same kind. It's a similar mighty angel this angel, I mean, this is a powerful description um, of him. Let me just read a couple more verses because um, there's more the Bible has to say about this angel. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This is no small angel. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out seven thunders uttered their voices. So, so it's, it's a big question who this angel is. Is this angel uh, another angel like the angels that were blasting the trumpets, the trumpet judgments? Or as we read this description, you know, there are, there are uh, descriptions here that really do seem to be describing Jesus. You know, things that we've already heard John say about him. Some say, no, listen, this is just another mighty angel. And the reason is, this is the reasoning behind the people who have these, this opinion. They say the word angel is never used of Jesus in Revelation. So um, it would be departing from the way that Christ has been described. It would be taking a word that was used for one particular celestial being and applying it to the Son of God in a way that, you know, departs from its typical use in the book of Revelation. In addition to that, um, John does not, these people would say, John does not just outright say that this was the Lord. You know, when he saw the Lord, it was no question that it was, in fact, the Lord. And he wasn't shy in saying that. And then they would also say that, like I said, this particular word doesn't mean another angel of a different sort, uh, this particular word, and it's very specific, means another angel of the same sort. So you have one camp that says it's a mighty angel. Uh, you have another camp who says, well, wait a minute. I mean, I get that. I get those, those arguments. However, there are a lot of things that, a lot of statements that here that are used to describe this angel that are also used to describe Jesus. He's clothed with a cloud. He has a rainbow on his head. That's, that's new, of course. His face was like the sun. His feet like pillars of fire. Voice like when a lion roars. Uh, and then this angel, specifically, as he's speaking of the two witnesses, he says, my two witnesses. So he comes. We know that when he comes again, he is going to be coming with a cloud, maybe a physical cloud, uh, maybe that cloud represents the cloud of witnesses. He is going to have a rainbow on his head. <clears throat> this, well, this angel has a rainbow on his head. And the rainbow represents, of course, the covenant between God and man. The covenant that was initiated after the global flood where God promised that he would not destroy the world by water again. 
Uh, the Bible says here that this angel had a face like the sun. And of course, when John turned around in Revelation chapter 1 and saw Jesus, the Son of God, his face was shining like the sun. Uh, his, this angel, his feet are like um, pillars of fire. And John, as he's looking at Jesus, he describes his feet like they were uh, brass refined in the fire. Uh, we know that Jesus, when he manifested himself to John in chapter 1, his voice was as the sound of many trumpets and, and rushing waters. And so while that may not be the same, you know, this particular celestial being is a very strong voice. And Jesus is described not only as the Lamb of God, but as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And then finally, as if that wasn't enough, they would say that, you know, this particular celestial being calls the two witnesses his witnesses. And that, that you know, personal pronoun seems very strong, and it seems to be something that only God could say. So let me just ask you tonight, out of curiosity, and you know, there's no wrong answer here, and you won't lose your salvation if you, if you raise your hand for the wrong thing. How many of you think that this is just an angel? Raise your hand. All right. Okay. How many of you think that this is Jesus? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you have no idea? Raise your hand. <laughs> oh, and I love you. I love you for that. And I'll tell you what, you know, like I've, I've been all over the map on this one. I have been all over the map. There was a point in time where I'm like, there's no way that this is Jesus. You know, this is another mighty angel. And then as I'm studying it this time, I'm like, man, uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, it seems like, um, it seems like it's possible that this is in fact the Lord. Uh, and we'll find out. It doesn't matter. You don't have to create a denomination over it. You know, it's not, it's, it's like, you know, you know, we're the church of Jesus as the angel in Revelation. Well, God bless you. I hope you figure a nice logo out for that one. But, you know, I think that, that the ministry too here to John is really interesting, right? And, and of course, there's an, there's an argument either way because angels are sent as ministering servants to those who have put their faith in the gospel. Um, but we also know that Jesus loves his people and that he ministers very personally to them. There is a pause here. There's a break in the work, right? I mean, there's a, a, just a mighty prophetic revelation that's been given to John. I mean, he's seeing this amazing scene, and then all of a sudden, there's this comma, like I said, not necessarily a period, but a comma, and it's almost as if there's a moment here for John to get refreshed, for John to be refreshed in the calling that God has on his life. It is interesting that in the hand of this mighty angel was a little book. Now, I want to tell you what I think that that little book is. And I think, I think it represents two, thing, two things. For one, for sure, it is the word of God. It is the word of God. For John, it was also the specific prophecy that God had given to him. Um, and it, at this point, it seems to be broken up into two parts. You know, there was the first prophetic piece that he was given. And now as there's this pause and as there's this opportunity to be refreshed... Because John was overwhelmed, John was distressed by the things that he saw. You know he was because you remember back in Revelation chapter 4, there was a scroll in the right hand of God. And the Bible says he wept uncontrollably because there was no one that was worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God Almighty. And there's just been this, you know, ringing out of the heart of the apostle. 
And so this pause is given, and there's a new prophetic peace that John is going to receive. And so, so verse 4 says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. So this angel, this mighty angel, this is an awesome scene. I mean, it in itself, you know, I'm sure was overwhelming while it was also refreshing. This angel descends from heaven, one foot in the sea, one foot on the sand, rainbow over his head, little book in his right hand, crying out with a loud voice like, you know, the, the king of the jungle roaring, right, in in seemingly total absolute authority, and while this angel cries out, there are seven thunders that utter, utter their vo voices. Uh, and so this is not unintelligible uttering. This is not just the sound of thunder. Uh, there are voices, seven voices, speaking particular things. And John, being the faithful servant that he was, grabbed his pen, opened up the scroll, was about to write down, and, you know, the voice from heaven said, stop. These things that have just been spoken, do not write them down. They are to be sealed. You know, there are prophetic aspects in Scripture that are unsealed. Things for us to know that God desires to disclose to us. And there are things that are sealed that God has chosen not to reveal. Um, I would encourage you, anytime you're tempted to understand something that God has chosen to seal, don't do it. Because there's nothing so special about you that you're going to discover something that God has chosen not to disclose to the rest of his kids. You know, if you're scrolling through Amazon on books of Revelation and you see a book that's titled, What the Seven Voices Uttered When John Was Told to Seal the Prophetic Word, don't buy the book. All right, don't buy the book because no one knows what it is that, has, that, that was said by these seven voices. And, you know, it is interesting to me, and I know that, you know, we're curious people, and, you know, we, we want to have the answers to things, but there are things that we just don't have the answer to. And it's okay not to have all the answers. You know, it's not a cop-out. Like, we should be digging deep into the Word of God. You know, we should be doing our due diligence. We should be worshiping him with our spirit and with, with our intellect as well, with our soul. Our whole being should be being poured into understanding the word of God. But there are times where it's like, you know what, not only do I not know that, I'm never going to know that. And so instead of trying to, to wrestle with something that God has not chosen to disclose, I'm going to trust him by faith. I'm going to put that in a little file that says to be disclosed at another time. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to trust that God is going to share those things with me. You know, sometimes we spin our wheels trying to figure out things that God is, God is not planning on answering in this life. And I think, you know, for me personally, um, like I said, I don't think it's a cop-out to say, hey, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. I'm trusting that to God. What I do know is this. What he has disclosed is this, and so my full focus is going to be centered on what God has chosen to disclose to us, because I want to be faithful with that. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required, and so if he, if he has given us revelation, I don't, I don't mean to beat this horse to death, but if he has given us revelation, we need to be faithful with it. You know, we can totally play games with God's word, and we can... 
give this facade that we're walking with God uh, and it looks like we are because we're experts in all these things that God has chosen not to answer. You know what I'm talking about? Like we are all, we are the, we are the guru. We know, we know the deeper things. We're kind of like modern day Gnostics. We know the deeper things. We've been digging in and God is revealed. And all of these, you know, peripheral issues we're experts in. And we give this impression that we're deeply spiritual and the reality is this we've played a spiritual shell game is what we've done we've been experts in things that god hasn't disclosed to us and we've neglected the things that god has disclosed to us and i don't ever want to get to heaven and and be in a place where it's like man wasn't that god i bet you were you were impressed with that study i bet you were impressed god with that that post i made and how i disclosed all those things and i don't want to hear god say you know what that meant nothing what did you do with what I was telling you to do. So you guys know what I'm talking about when I say that. He goes on to say, verse 5, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that they should, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants, the prophets. So so as the angel, obviously, in this uh, amazing, you know, awesome position, is making his cry like the sound of a roaring lion, the voices of the seven thunders were making their declaration, this particular uh, angel raises his hand to heaven and swears by him who lives forever and ever. Now, the people who are in the camp that this is an angel say, hey, this proves it's an angel because if this was Jesus, why would Jesus swear by himself, to himself, or to God the Father because Jesus is in fact God? Um, but you know that there's precedence for God taking an oath Uh, to himself, because he can swear by no one greater than himself, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. And so, in a sense, God is binding um, himself to the word that he has spoken, indicating to us. I mean, he doesn't have to do this. He did it with Abraham, and it was a strong declaration that the promise that he gave to Abraham was absolutely, without a doubt, going to come to pass, because he made an oath even to his own self, you uh, for sure would not, he for sure would not make an oath to something lesser than himself. He wouldn't swear by our ability or our power or by Abraham. But wanting us to know that the promise would absolutely be fulfilled, he made an oath to himself. And so um, the argument from the side that this might be Jesus is that there is precedence in the word of God uh, for God taking an oath by himself. Um, I will say to you tonight Uh, This does not give you the freedom or the latitude. This is not a justification that enables you to be a person that takes oaths um, or, you know, says, hey, I I swear on my mother's grave or, you know, I swear on the Bible or, or whatever it may be because, you know, Jesus said that what should be happening in the life of a true disciple is our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Right? We, we should not have to, to um, elicit a response from people to believe us because somehow we're binding ourselves to something, 
to ensure that, in fact, our word is going to come to pass. And that's what was happening with the Pharisees. They were like, hey, you know, I, I swear by heaven, or I swear by earth, or I swear by Jerusalem, or I swear by the hairs on my head, which would be a pretty difficult thing for me. Like, you guys laugh before I even finish my joke. And all of that in reverse order. So, I mean, if you wanted to be lightly bound to a promise, you would swear by the hairs of your head if you were a Pharisee. If you wanted to be a little more bound to what you were saying, you would swear by Jerusalem. If you wanted to be a little more bound, you would swear by earth. And if you wanted to be really bound to your word, you would swear by heaven. But all of that was a system to enable you to get out of the promise that you made. And so Jesus is saying that is not the way that it should be with the true believer, the disciple, because there should be integrity. Look, if you say that you're going to do something, then do it. Don't you appreciate that? Don't you appreciate it when people are just simply people of their word? You know, I mean, there are enough disappointments in life because so many people don't come through on what they say. How refreshing is it when people are faithful to what they've said? You know, when you um, get a job and there's a job description and you sign, you sign that uh, you, you sign that job description, you've read the, what the requirements are, you've read what the expectations are. As a Christian, you're bound to fulfill that now because you're acknowledging that not only have you read it, not only do you know it, but you are agreeing to it. And if employers should be able to trust anybody in the workforce, it should be the believer in Jesus Christ. So, so this angel, or Jesus, swears by the one who created the heaven, the earth, and the sea. Obviously, um, this deals with how we perceive the world to be made. But the, but the word here is this, that there should be no more delay. So up to this point, you know, it's been a, a series of things. It's been systematic. It's been chronological um, but now, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, everything is going to come to a quick end. And, and the mystery of God is going to be finished. As he declared to the servants who are his prophets. So, so what he's saying here is the whole totality of the prophetic word is going to come to pass. I mean, this is a really, really big statement. Everything, think about this, right, from a prophetic perspective. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of prophecies in the Bible dealing with a, a variety of different things. I mean, just with respect to the person of Christ, there are over 300 prophecies, and many of them have already been fulfilled. And what is being declared here in this chapter is now is the moment that all of those things that were spoken by the prophets in a foretelling sense are actually going to come to pass. And I just want to say to you tonight that the word of God does not fall to the ground. The word of God does not fall to the ground. There is not a single thing that God has prophetically declared in the Bible that is not going to come to pass. And, and I know, you know, in this world, sometimes it feels like, you know, man, what can I trust? What can I put, what can I put my faith in? What can I stand on? I mean, everything seems to be and this is so true for the days that we're living in right now. Everything seems to be so untrustworthy. Everything is in a state of flux. Everything is constantly changing, literally from day to day. It's almost like I'm not a bull rider, clearly. But, I mean, if you've, if you've watched people, I mean, these guys are just crazy who ride bulls. 
I'm not a bull rider, but you know, I mean, those guys hang on for dear life. And in some ways, the days that we're living in, it feels like we're riding a bull. But the truth is this, none of the circumstances of the life around us are what we put our trust in anyway. We stand on God's word. We put our trust and faith in the sure word of God that will not fade away. The Bible says of itself that it endures forever. And I just think it's, it's a beautiful statement to say that, that in, in those moments coming, in that particular moment, collectively, all of those prophecies are going to be fulfilled. What is the probability of that? You know, um, if you're trying to share with somebody how this book is in fact the word of God and what you know, makes it stand out is distinct from other books. Um, I think the acronym STAMP is a great acronym just to, just to memorize. You know, scripture says of itself that it is the word of God. You know, this book, like no other book, declares itself to be inspired by God. Um, this book, like no other book, has radically transformed people's lives over the course of thousands and thousands of years. I mean, broken addictions brought healing, spiritual healing, uh, transformation, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Archaeologically, it is proven year by year. You know, someone once said, I think it was John Michaels, that the archaeologist lives in fear of putting his shovel into another uh, pile of dirt, because every time the archaeologist does, he discovers that the Bible is absolutely archaeologically, historically accurate. I mean, it is undeniable. Um, there's manuscript evidence. So from a, from a scientific perspective, as you're looking, a, looking at a, an ancient document and how we verify uh, that it is, in fact, uh, the, close to the original writings, this particular book has more manuscript evidence than any other book. And then the last piece is prophecy. It's the prophetic word of God. You know, God declares the end from the beginning. If there were just eight prophecies that were fulfilled, the probability of eight prophecies from this book being fulfilled, the probability is one times 10 to the 17th power. So that is one times 10 with 17 zeros behind it. You might be thinking, that doesn't help me at all. What does that mean? Well, let me illustrate it for you. That would be the equivalent of covering the entire state of Texas. That's a big state. It's 269,000 square miles, covering it two feet deep with silver dollars, right? So you have enough silver dollars to, have you guys ever driven through Texas before? I mean, it's agony, right? You just, you know the little top part of Texas? You just drive through that, it's like, hey, this isn't gonna be bad, and four hours later, you wanna like, well, you know what you wanna do. But it is a huge state, and so if you, if you had enough silver dollars to fill the whole state two feet deep, and then you got in a helicopter, you blindfolded somebody, you colored a silver dollar red, and you flew over Texas, and you threw it out in some arbitrary place, and then you got another person and blindfolded them, and then let them walk throughout Texas, the probability of them picking up that one single silver dollar that has been colored red is the same probability of eight of these prophecies in scripture being fulfilled. Do you know what I'm talking about? Isn't God's word amazing? That is just simply eight. You can give God praise for that tonight. Just thanks. And, and you know, I would, I would just encourage you too that as we consider that, it reminds us that God is, God is in control. 
right? God is in control. The angel, in a way, is saying everything is going to turn out just as God planned it to turn out. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. He probably said it nicer than that. And he said to me, Take and eat, and it'll make your stomach bitter, but it'll be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, check this out, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And so in the second part of this chapter, you know, we have this really interesting interchange with this amazing angel, right? So he's, John is seeing all this. It's an amazing thing to consider. And then the voice says to him, you've seen the book in the hand of the angel. The book, by the way, is open, right? It's not closed. It's open. It's not sealed. It's unsealed. That's significant. Take that book out of the hand of the angel. And so, you know, John's obedient. He, and he says, sir, can you give me the, that little book? And the angel says, yes, take it, but eat it. You know, eat the book. What a crazy picture this is. Eat the book. And, and, and then he says, when you eat it, like he lays out what's going to happen. There's going to be a physical reaction. I think it's physical and it's metaphysical. The two things are tied together. There's going to be a reaction. It's going to be sweet to your taste. It is like honey. And it is going to be bitter in your stomach. There's like this contrasting experience that he is going to have with this book that he consumes. And lo and behold, just like the angel said, as he takes the little book out of the angel's hand and consumes it, as he eats the book, we're not going to role play that tonight, don't worry. Don't, you don't have to gnaw on your Bible tonight, but you should be spiritually gnawing on your Bible. You know, when, when he did it, that's exactly what happened. He eats it, his stomach became bitter, but it was sweet to his taste. What is, what, like, what in the world? What in the world is happening here? Because this does just seem so bizarre. I want to tell you what I believe is happening. Um, God is instructing John in this moment of distress, in this moment of um, probably uh, emotional weakness, right, in this moment where the prophetic piece up to this point has been so hard, I would imagine it was hard for John to consider even moving forward. The, the angel is encouraging him to be strengthened by the word. The angel is encouraging him because really when he eats the book, that's what's happening. He is consuming the word of God. He's consuming this really particular prophecy that he is going to be given that he hasn't been given yet. But he is also, because it is the word of God, he is going to be strengthened by it. Now, I want you just to think about a couple of things here. Um, first of all, he had to take it, right? The angel said to him, take it, right? The voice said, take it, but the angel also said, take it. So it was in the hand of the angel, and it was John's responsibility to take it from the angel. The angel did not take the book and cram it down John's mouth, right? The angel did not do that. There had to be, and it had to be an act of volition for, for John. 
If you want to be refreshed, if you want to be strengthened, if you're a servant of God that has been serving the Lord faithfully, but maybe you've hit a wall, maybe you've hit a moment in your life where you, it's, it's hard for you to even perceive how it is that you're going to move forward, even if you're not in that spot, this is so good, just as biblical counsel anyway, you have to take the word of God. You've got you've to take it for yourself. Look, God offers his word to us. Sometimes, you know, it just sits there. It just sits there as an unused app on our phone. Or it just sits there as an unused book on our bedside table. Um, or it just sits there in our car. Or it just sits there in our backpack. It's not that we don't have the Bible, but it just goes unused. Because God's offer hasn't been taken up by us. You know, and I will tell you that there's a, there is a spiritual dimension to this. Because the last thing that the adversary, the devil, wants is for you to be, one of the last things that he wants is for you to be in the word of God. And so, you know, sometimes you hit a wall. Sometimes there's a barrier. Sometimes the book's a foot away from you. Sometimes, you know, you're, the, the app is almost open. And then, and then all of a sudden it feels as if something happens and you know whatever it might be, you, you concede to it. Instead of taking it and, and receiving it for yourself, it just sits there. You know, there's a story that I heard a long time ago about this Vietnamese translator. It was during the Vietnam War. And he was a Christian man. He was an evangelist. He was a translator. He had been captured by the North Vietnamese. And, and because he wasn't a North Vietnamese, and especially because he was a Christian, he was tortured and he was brainwashed. And they, they targeted his faith, right? So when they, were, when they were torturing him, they were torturing him to denounce his faith in Christ. And the, the torture process that he went through was so severe that he ended up recanting his faith in Jesus. And he lived, you know, with a, a lot of um, burden over this and um, feelings, obviously, of failure. And it was, a, it was a horrible situation for him to be in. And he recounts this story. He had been given the worst job in the camp. His job was to go to the latrine and to empty all of the trash cans that were filled with soiled toilet paper uh, and so this was the worst possible job that you, you could have. Well, there was a Christian organization that had been giving, giving Bibles to the North Vietnamese and uh, just distributing them. And the captain, the person who was overseeing this camp, had such a disregard for Christians and for the word of God that he was actually taking pages from the Bible and using them as toilet paper. And so this individual, this person who had recanted his faith, one day was cleaning he, he was cleaning the garbage cans, and he had been praying. He'd been asking God for forgiveness. He'd been asking God to somehow get him a Bible. And as he was emptying out this garbage pail with soiled Bible pages, he recognized Romans chapter 8. Like he's, he's emptying it out. It's covered with refuse. And, and yet it's distinguishable enough where he recognizes Romans chapter 8. He takes it, he unfolds it, he, he gets water, and he like carefully, methodically just cleans the soil off of it. Day after day, he accumulated more and more Bible pages until he had the whole rest of the book of Romans. And God spoke to him, God met him in a way where as he was repenting for 
the recanting of his faith and asking God to somehow miraculously deliver to him the word of God so he could be strengthened again. God did it in a way that no one could have expected. And the value, I just want you to think about this, and this is my point, the value that he had for the scriptures as he carefully, meticulously, lovingly collected all of those pieces and kept them in a safe place. You know, sometimes we have such access to God's word that unfortunately what it develops within our hearts is a disregard, a disregard. We have such an availability to Bible teaching and to scripture, and yet you would think for all of that that we would have a a greater affinity and value for scripture And unfortunately, sometimes the opposite happens. What I see from this interchange between the angel and John is this. Number one, the book had to be taken, right? The book had to be taken and ultimately received, and that's what John did. The number two is this. It had to be consumed. It had to be eaten. And, of course, this is a picture, right? This is an illustration. This is an allegory. This is is really not physical. It's metaphysical. And in the Middle Eastern mindset, this would have been totally familiar to them, right? Because when they sat down and ate something together, it was a reflection of community. You would take the piece of bread, you would dip it in the same sauce. You know, this is double double dipping, triple dipping, quadruple dipping, saliva on my bread dipped in the sauce. You dip in the sauce, you got my saliva on your bread, and you eat that bread, and look, we're one. Right? We are one. There is no social distancing whatsoever in that scene. But the picture is this, as we've had, as we've had this opportunity together, we are becoming one with each other. And, and what's happening here is this, the same thing, right? I mean, you are consuming, John is consuming the word of God, and it is influencing him. It is becoming a part of him. It is, it is, it is, um, it is in a spiritual way becoming a, a part of his whole being. And so the second thing I would say is this, when you and I read the word of God, George Mueller said this recently in something uh, Rachel texted me. He said that you know he did not want, when he read the Bible, he did not want the word of God to pass through him like water through a pipe. You know, he didn't want it to be, because this is what happens, sometimes literally it is in one ear and out the other. And so he had the discipline of meditation. And when you and I meditate, what happens is we begin to consume the word of God. It influences us and becomes part of our being. The third thing that I see is this. It is sweet and bitter, right? It is sweet and bitter. The Bible refers to itself as food. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, The scripture refers to itself as milk. You know, Peter encouraged young believers to desire the pure milk of God's word. It's described as meat, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Paul's admonishing the, the believers there, and he's like, listen, I would love to tell you these deeper things, but the fact is this, you're so spiritually mature, you can't even eat the solid meat of God's word. We should be spiritually maturing. And then, of course, Psalm 119, verses, verse 103 says, 
that the scripture is like honey to our lips. And there are parts of this prophecy that are sweet. The rapture is sweet. God's faithfulness is sweet. The second coming is sweet. Heavenly praise is sweet. No more tears is a sweet concept, right? It will be a reality for us. The city of God descending from heaven is going to be sweet. But there are bitter aspects as well. Locust judgments and deceiving spirits and the antichrist and the false prophet. There's a double-edged sword. Some of it, some of it tastes good, some of it is sweet like honey, and some of it is bitter and painful. And listen, let's be careful to not just want the sweet parts of God's word. Let's be careful. Let's be careful not to just focus on the stuff that makes us feel good. Because while it makes us feel good and there's a place for that, you know, sometimes the hard things are the things that make us grow. It's the difficult things that bring us to a place of self-confrontation, you know, where God is speaking something that, frankly, we just don't want to hear. And as he says it, the word of God is like a mirror. It reveals where we're at, and it may be bitter for the moment, but listen, the person who's trained by the challenging word of God is going to ultimately grow in righteousness. And then the last thing to this is, clearly the angel is saying, you're not done. John, you're not done. You need to finish it. You need to finish it. You need to prophesy again. John, this is, you know, you're at the midway point, you know, and, and this has been a lot. I don't mean to put words in the angel's mouth, but I think that this is kind of, this is the, you know, the pathos of what's happening. He's saying it's been a lot. You know, it's been a lot, and you are weary, and you've been faithful, but listen, you're not done. And I just want to say to you, brothers and sisters, you're not done until he says you're done, right? You're not, you're not done until he says you're done, and in those moments where you're like, man, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore, God. These people. <laughs> These people. Like, that was Moses, right? Your people. I mean, at one minute, they were his people. Then, then when they were misbehaving, they were God's people. Like, your people, God, this is crazy. And there are a hundred things that are going to happen as you serve God or you're just looking to be faithful as a Christian. I'm not even talking about the ser service of God. I'm talking about being a faithful husband, being a faithful wife, being a faithful kid, being a faithful employee, being a faithful friend where it's like you're going to hit a wall and you're going to be thinking, man, I'm done. Like, I am done with this. I can't take another day of this. And, you know, you're not done until God says you're done. And by the way, in your marriage, you're never done, right? You're never done. I mean, you got to be faithful. you got to be faithful to the promise that you've made because your yes is yes before the Lord and before your spouse, but, you know, in, in moments in ministry when it's been hard for me, and there have been a lot of moments where I'm like, man, I'm, we're moving to the beach. <laughs> I, this is what, this is, I mean, it doesn't all just boil down to this, but, but as a servant of God, he is my commander-in-chief, right? He's my commander-in-chief. He, he's the one who gives the orders, and when he gives an order, we're faithful to fulfill that order until he changes the directives for us. And you know, you can't move on from something until God speaks to you and gives you new orders. And you know, there's a way that God does that, and there's a way that God does not do that. God will never do that in a way that is not in alignment with his word. God will never use, God will never use conflict and division and ungodliness to move you on to the next thing, right? 
be faithful to the end. It was a tough message, and John needed to hear it. You know, maybe you're not totally convinced that serving God is difficult or getting a word from God is difficult. This, in Daniel, if you read the book of Daniel, this is what Daniel said. These were Daniel's words um, himself when he got a word from God or was going through something. There were times where he trembled. There were times where the Bible says his strength was drained. There were times of straight-up repentance because he was not only in sin himself, but nationally there was sin there were times where he said he was distressed, he was pale in complexion, he was alarmed, he was moved to prayer, he was moved to fasting, and he submitted to the will of God. Bearing God's message is fulfilling, but it can also be distressing and exhausting. And in those moments, you need to make sure that you're taking the burden and you're handing it back over to the Lord. The Bible says that we are to cast our cares unto him because he cares for us. The, the scripture reminds us that the battle that we're in is not against flesh and blood. It's not you against your wife or you against your husband or you against another brother or sister or you against the government. It is warfare. It's spiritual warfare. We're involved in a wrestling match. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's absolutely exhausting. There's no sport more exhausting than wrestling. It's fatiguing. And, and that's the illustration that Paul uses. You might be thinking today, man, I've been trying to do the right thing, but pastor, I'm just worn out. Why is it? Well, it's because you're in a spiritual battle. And so suit yourself up in the full armor of God and don't quit until your race is finished. Until your race is finished. Paul said this, his final words uh, before he was martyred for his faith, his head was cut off by Nero because he was faithful to the gospel. He said this, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day. And not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. Don't you want to be able to say that? Like when you're wrapping it up, church, and you're like, how about you wrap it up? All right, well... <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm just saying. I'm just saying because, you know, I have the privilege right now of being one voice in your life to say to you, because some of you are on the precipice, some of you are about to step over that threshold, you know, and, and it's all converging at once. You might feel like you are in the perfect storm and you are ready to bail. I want to say to you, listen, you, you need to look further. You need to look beyond your moment, right? Your moment may be hard. And there may be all these emotions that are pressing in on you. You've got to look beyond that to your day of entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Because you want to be able to say to the Lord, you know what, I fought the good fight. God, you set a race before me. And it wasn't easy, but you know, you sustained me all the way. And when I couldn't go on any further, you picked me up and you carried me. And God, at the end of the day, it wasn't just me being faithful. It was you being faithful to me, and I wouldn't have known your faithfulness unless I was faithful myself. Look, if you're not going to be faithful, you're going to lose out on an opportunity for God to demonstrate his faithfulness, and you don't want to miss that miracle. So don't give up. Be refreshed. Be encouraged. Consume the word. Make sure that the word of God, not only are you in it, but it is in you. How do you know that happens? You know what happens when you're being obedient to it. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this word of encouragement tonight. And just pray, Father, that you would help those who are hurting in this moment.
God you know. There's not a single voice that's cried out to you that you've not heard. And I'm thankful for that, Father. We're thankful for that. We may feel unheard, but the truth is that, God, if you know when one sparrow falls, you know every need of a son or of a daughter of faith. And so strengthen the hearts tonight, God. Strengthen the hearts tonight as we're just closing in, in prayer this portion of our service tonight, maybe this evening. The truth is this, you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, you, you yourself are not a born-again believer in Jesus. You've heard the word. It's like it's been in the hand of the angel, but you've not taken it yourself. You've not taken the gospel yourself by faith. You've not said to God, you've not said to him, God, this message that I've heard is for me and I believe it. God, I receive it. And, and God, I confess that I've sinned against you and, and I'm receiving Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And tonight, maybe that's the step of faith that you need to take. And what's been missing in your life all along has been a meaningful, deep relationship with God. And you can have that through faith in his Son. And so tonight, as our eyes are closed and as our heads are bowed, if this is you, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of your sins and to have a real relationship with God, one that will not only last through this life, but will last for all of eternity. Tonight, if this is you, I want to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting, would you raise your hand tonight? Just stretch your hand up high, and as you do, you're just simply saying, Derek, I want to put my faith in Jesus. I, I need him tonight. God bless you over here on my right and here in the center. It's awesome. In the back on my right, thank you, right here in the center. Man, that is so good. God bless you guys over here in the front on my right. Just stretch your hand up high. God is leading you tonight to take this all-important step of faith. You can put your hands down. Maybe tonight, as a Christian, you know it's, um, you know, you would just honestly say that your relationship with God is not where it needs to be. And, and this has been a, a bitter piece for you to acknowledge there's a sweetness that God wants to bring, but, but listen, you've got you've to receive this first. Just the honesty before yourself and God that things aren't what they need to be and you need to devote yourself to God again, wholly and completely, holding nothing back. And so tonight, if this is you, would you raise your hand? I wanna pray for you as well. I see your hands. Thank you so much. I see your hands. And yours too. And yours, thank you so much. All right, you can put your hands down. And Father, thank you. Oh God, we're so thankful tonight for these souls. And we pray that you would meet each need. As you're only able to do, God, perfectly and beautifully. Tonight, right where you're sitting, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer and I'm just going to ask you to make this your sincere prayer to God and, 
as you do, he is going to hear you and he's going to answer this prayer and he's going to work in your life. And so you can pray this prayer out loud with me. God, tonight, I want to thank you for speaking to me. God, I hear. And tonight I turn away from my sin. I turn to Jesus, your son. Believing that through faith, you have forgiven me and cleansed me and that I'm your child. Fill me with your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.